Awesome. Thanks so much, Amber. And uh, as you have heard, this story that we are up to now in our epic series of the Old Testament is the story of Esther. The heroine of the story, an amazing uh, woman of God, and it is an epic story by all accounts. But the book of Esther provides uh, an interesting theological problem for us because throughout the book, it does not mention God one time. The whole book does not mention the name of God. There's no the Lord, there's no God. Um, he is... He is um, that the name of the Lord is, is not found there. Can you believe that? No mention of God in a book of the Bible. I mean, what is it doing there? What, it, what is this book doing in our Bibles? Well, it is an incredible story. And I believe, though, that the absence of an explicit reference to God actually makes his providential hand all the more evident in the story. Um, because the name of God isn't mentioned, it actually heightens our awareness as we read the story of maybe what God is doing because we're left to wonder at the end. This book teaches us that throughout the narrative and in this story of Esther, this book teaches us that though God may be hidden, he is not absent. Though God, though God may be hidden from the story, may, though, though he may not be explicitly referenced in this book, he is certainly not absent. Maybe hidden, but not absent. Now, this is not a perfect analogy, but this sort of reminded me of an episode of Scooby-Doo. If you ever watch Scooby-Doo or you have kids that watch Scooby-Doo, you, you, um, you maybe know how one of these episodes goes. Uh, now, I'm not saying that God is the, the villain of a crime, but work with me here. Um, if you know how, how an episode goes, there's a crime that takes place and this group of meddling kids and this dog is uncovering clues and they're trying to figure out who done it. And then by the end of the episode, of course, whoever committed this crime, what do they do? They're, they're unmasked. Right? And we find out who, who it was that actually committed this crime. Who, who was behind this, this issue the whole time. And then, of course, the villain says something like, and I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for you meddling kids. And I think, in a, in a somewhat similar way, I think that the author of Esther wants us to do something similar. I think when we read the book of Esther, which we're not going to be able to get into all 10 chapters, but uh, I would encourage you to read it. And And I think after you read the book of Esther, I think what we're supposed to do is to kind of unmask the book and, and see, oh, it was God the whole time. It, it, was the, it was the Lord at work the whole time. I can see God's hand in all of these things that happened. And it was him that was working out his plan to save his people the whole time. Even though he might not be, um, he might be hidden in the story, he is certainly not absent. And I believe that that's what Esther teaches us. And that gets us to the point of the sermon today. To borrow a line from a popular worship song right now, that even when we don't see it, God is working his plan to save his people. Even when we don't see it, God is working his plan to save his people. And we are all tempted at times in our lives, I'm sure, um, to doubt and to question whether God is at work. We find ourselves in very difficult and trying circumstances and situations in our lives and we think, what, where is God in this? There's no way that he could work good out of this situation, right? 
the loss of a loved one or, or some sort of pain that we go through, there's no way that God could be at work. Or we look at the world and we think, where is God? We see the tragedies that happen. Where, what is God doing? Or we look at the state of the church as a whole and think, okay, what's, I mean, is God still in control? Is he, is he doing something here? Is God working? And Esther teaches us the answer is an emphatic yes. He is working. He is working out his plan. His hand is at work, even when we might not see it. He may be hidden, but he's not absent. And there are a few connections for us that are instructive as we move along in the story. Before we look at a few specific pieces of the text, I want to try and paraphrase the story as much as possible because you kind of need the whole thing. We need to know what's going on uh, before we, we get out the specifics. And now, again, this would be a great book for you to go home tonight, read with your family, and, and kind of study it together and, and, and read it. Uh, but w- I, I want to try and paraphrase as much as possible um, what's going on. So work with me here. I'm going to try and tell us the story in brief. Here we go. The setting is in Persia, between 486 and 464 BC. The king's name is Ahasuerus. You might know him as Xerxes. Other, um, other, other history records his name as Xerxes. And he reigns from India to Ethiopia. A massive, huge kingdom. He's very rich. He's in control. And in his kingdom, there's a group of Jewish exiles. The Jews are the people of God that God chose to be his people in the Old Covenant. And they were taken during the, uh, what's known as the Babylonian captivity from King Nebuchadnezzar. They're taken from the land uh, in, in Jerusalem specifically and they're taken away and they're scattered abroad throughout the rest of this kingdom in Babylon. And now the Persians have taken over and um, this king is in charge and he is super rich. And in chapter 1 we see that he wants to show off just how rich he is and he throws a huge party that lasts for six months. And I believe the kids would call this a rager these days. Am I right? Okay, I'm kidding. Um, but he throws this big party to show off his riches and, um, and, and in the course of this, this party, uh, the king, King Ahasuerus, he, he, he asks or he commands really Queen Vashti, his, his wife and the queen, he commands her to come and, and, to, and to kind of be shown off because she's so beautiful. He wants to come show her off. Just like he's showing off all his money, all his riches, all his power, he wants to show off the beauty of his wife. And guess what she replies to that? Nah, not happening. And this does not make the king very happy. And the king's ego is rather hurt by this. And instead of trying to woo his wife, and instead of actually loving her well, he doubles down and he actually sends out a letter to all of the provinces in this kingdom from India to Ethiopia that says something like, Women need to support their, women need to obey their husbands. Now, men, this is not a good way to go about this. Um, we should woo our wives. We should love them uh, well so that they would um, lovingly be in our marriages. Uh, but this is not what happens with this king. And, uh, and this edict goes out that women should give honor to their husbands. Crazy, I know. That's just chapter one. Then, a while later... This crazy, powerful king decides that he wants more women for himself. And this is an evil, awful, immoral thing for him to do. But he basically has a kingdom-wide beauty contest. And he has women taken from their homes, taken from their families to be used for his own pleasure. These women are taken, chapter 2, verse 8 says. That's a key word. And he's brought in, they're brought in for the enjoyment of the king. Now, can you imagine just as a, as a, a woman in this time, a beautiful young woman to be um, at this time, you, you, you don't know, you could be taken away from, from your family at any given moment to be given to the king for no apparent reason. And that's what's happening. This is a wicked king and it's a wicked thing what he is doing. 
And Esther happens to be one of these women. Esther is a Jew, a part of the people of God who are living in exile. They're living in a foreign land. And she was adopted by her cousin named Mordecai, who is also a Jew and um, a part of the people of God that are exiled. And so Esther is sort of raised up by her cousin Mordecai. And Esther ends up, chapter 2, verse 15 says, Esther wins favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And 2.17 says that the king loved Esther more than all the other women. And the crazy king, he makes Esther queen. So, this is the story. Now, Esther is taken from her people from, from, um, and, and given to the king, but she wins favor in the eyes of the people, and the king actually loves her more than all the other women. That's chapter 2. Mordecai, the father figure in Esther's life, he keeps up with Esther. He's checking in on her. He's, he's going to the palace and trying to hear what's going on to communicate with her. And one time, Mordecai was around the gate of the king's palace, and he heard a couple of the king's men talking, and they were actually plotting about how to kill the king. There's a mutiny, and Mordecai hears of it, and he's like, hmm, I I, I hear this is going on, and Mordecai sends word to Esther. Esther tells the king what's going to happen. They investigate, and it turns out to be true. And now the king um, has it written down and recorded in his books that Mordecai saved his life. So you see, Mordecai is there at the right time, and uh, and he reports that somebody is going to come take the king's life, and Mordecai, it's recorded in the king's chronicles and in, in, in his book uh, that Mordecai did something to save his life. That's going to be important later. But then enters an evil villain named Haman, who you heard in chapter 3 in, in the reading, and he rises to a powerful position in the king's advisors. And one day, Haman was at the king's gate, and all of the people around, all of the people around the king's gate, if you can kind of you know, they're at the palace and outside the king's gate there are, there are people kind of ready to work or whatever. And Haman is there who's a powerful figure. And all of the, the people that are out there, they bow down to Haman. They pay him homage, except for one guy who's out there, Mordecai. Mordecai, Esther's cousin, the father figure in her life, does not bow down to this, um, this man, Haman, who is one of the king's kind of right-hand men. He doesn't bow down to him, and Haman is upset about this because he's a prideful, arrogant weenie, and in a fit, in a fit of vengeful anger, Haman suggested to the king, what, what you heard in the reading, Haman suggests to the king then that there are a people in this kingdom, chapter 3, verse 8, um, that says, uh, Haman says to the king, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in the provinces of your kingdom. And their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's benefit to tolerate them. So Haman, because he's upset, his ego is hurt, he's prideful that this man didn't bow down to him like he was God or something. And he says to the king, you need to take these people out. Which is a bold-faced lie, by the way, that they would be disobeying the law because they weren't. The the Jews in in the book of Jeremiah, they were commanded to seek the welfare of the city that they were in. They weren't weren't doing anything to upset the king's kingdom at all. They're just just living their lives as as citizens. But then also, um, Haman knew, just like you and I know if we read the story, that the king loves money and he loves to show it off. And all it took was a little bit of, well, a lot lot of money, Haman offers 10,000 talents of silver to make this happen, to destroy a whole people. And the king says, all right, go for it. If it means more money for me, yeah, that's fine. Which is a small lesson for us, that money uh, can be definitely the root of all evils. 
So the decree goes out in chapter 3, verse 13, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. This is a horrific decree from the king that, that basically dictates genocide of a whole people in the kingdom. That's chapter 3. Mordecai hears of this and he mourns. Esther hears of this and she is distraught over her people. She's hurt by it. And Mordecai sends a messenger to tell Esther that Esther needs to go to the king and she needs to plea on behalf of these people, of her people. She needs to do something to try and save them. And then Esther replies and says that it's against the king's laws for her to do this. And um, chapter four, verses 13 and 14 says this, Mordecai sent, uh, well, I'm sorry. I don't want to read that part yet. She basically says that um, if I do this, I'm going to die. It's not my turn to to go to the king. And um, and if I do this, I am going to die. And then Mordecai replies again in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 4. Mordecai sent a reply and said, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish And who knows, here's the kind of famous line from this book, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Mordecai challenges Esther, hey, you're in a position to do something. You You can act, you can work on behalf of our people. And then Esther sends her reply, go, gather to the Jews, hold a fast on my behalf. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, And the other famous line, and if I perish, I perish. Esther then risks her life, enters into the king's quarters. And chapter 5, verse 2 says, And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Now, in the meantime, crazy Haman is filled with pride and plans to hang Mordecai on gallows that he has constructed chapter 5. And then that night, chapter 6 begins, that night the king couldn't sleep. Chapter 6 verse 1 records that on that night the king could not sleep. And so he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles that were read before the king. So the king couldn't sleep one night and he wants a bedtime story read to him so maybe he can sleep. And this story that he has read to him is the time when Mordecai had saved his life. That's the story that he gets read. And the king wonders, has Mordecai ever been honored? Has he ever been celebrated for what he did in saving my life? And one of the, the servants says, no, no, he never has. And so the king orders for somebody, uh, one of his right-hand men is going to go and is going to honor Mordecai and is going to parade him around the city and say, remember what Mordecai has done. He saved the life of the king. He's going to have somebody do this. And who do you think, which guy happens to be around at the right time to be the one that is going to parade Mordecai around the city? It just so happens to be Haman, the mean, evil weenie who has just built these gallows to kill Mordecai on. So in a reversal of fortunes, now Haman was planning to kill Mordecai, but now Flip that upside down and now Mordecai is the one that has to parade, or Haman is the one that has to parade Mordecai around the city and show him off to all the people how great he is because he saved the king. Needless to say, Haman is obviously distraught by this. And then the next day, 
Esther finally reveals to the king that her people were going to be killed and then she asks for them to be spared and then she tells the king that Haman was actually the one that plotted it all to happen. And then in another epic and tremendous reversal in chapter 7 verses 9 and 10 it says this, one of the king's men, Harbona, is in attendance of the king and he said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king was abated. So the symbol of Haman's hatred for Mordecai and the symbol for his hatred for the people the Jewish people, God's people in and of themselves, becomes the object through which he loses his own life. His own pride and his own evil and his own anger becomes the thing that actually kills him in the end, which is a small lesson for us that to watch our own pride, to not be puffed up with our own self-conceit, to think we're something when really we are nothing, because it ends up being our downfall. Esther then sees to it that Mordecai is able to send out a message to everybody in the name of the king. The Jews are allowed to defend themselves on that day. And then the Jews, God's people, they then triumph over their enemies. And Esther ends up being the way that the people of God are saved. Quite the story. Again, I encourage you to read it. That was a quick 10 minute or so way to, to tell the story. It is incredible. And there are so many different interesting tidbits and details that we could get into. But I wanna just point out a few things for us that we can learn from today to live it out in our own lives. And so that we can remember that even when we don't see it, God is working his plan to save his people. The first thing we see is this. God uses coincidences to accomplish his plan. God uses coincidences Notice, I'm putting quotations, air quotations around coincidences. God uses coincidences to accomplish his plan. You see, for somebody with a biblical worldview, for somebody that is living in God's world, that trusts in God, there are no such thing as coincidences. They are always God's providential hand at work. He is always working out his plan to save his people. Think about this. Was it a coincidence that Esther was adopted by Mordecai and happened to be in the right place at the right time to be brought into the king? Was it a coincidence that Mordecai overheard the plan to kill the king and ended up being to save his life and then was remembered on the night that the king just so happened to have a sleepless night and have a story read to him? Was this a coincidence? Was the king's restless night a coincidence? Of course not. It was God working. And that's what we see by the end. There are really no coincidences. And this encourages us. Every moment, every opportunity, every conversation we have, everything that happens that seems random, we need to think this is God's world. He is working out his plan to save a people through Christ for his glory. How is this a part of this? And as we think through this, that we live in God's world, that there are no coincidences. Every coincidence is God at work. I wonder, do you have this big view of God and his providence? Do you really believe and do you trust that he is working out a plan to save his people? And I think that this book of Esther is designed to challenge us in this way. That every circumstance in my life, every single circumstance, every single situation I find myself in is an opportunity for God to carry out his will in my life individually and his big plan to save a people through Jesus. Every situation, every circumstance can all be for God's glory. 
Even the worst circumstances are used by God to bring about his purposes. I mean, think about that. Esther, she didn't have a choice when she was taken in to be part of the the king's women. She didn't have a choice. She was taken away. She did not choose that for herself. And I'm sure she would not have chose that for herself. Yet, she made the most of the situation and the circumstance, and she found favor in the eyes of the people and in the eyes of the king. And this teaches us that no matter how terrible a situation we might find ourselves in, even if we didn't do it to ourselves, even if we find ourselves in a terrible, devastating, difficult circumstance and situation, it can still be used by God to bring about his glory and to work his plan. Do you believe that this morning? Because some of us are in difficult and trying circumstances. I know you walked in having gone through some challenging and difficult times even this week or in your past. And we need to believe this morning as the people of God that he is at work, that he is bringing about his plan to save his people for his glory. Even when it seems like he might be absent, we know that he's not. His hand is at work. Next we see that God uses imperfect people to accomplish his plan. God uses imperfect people to accomplish his plan. Are are you glad uh, for this? Because that means he can use you and I. Because we're all imperfect people, aren't we? Because Esther was not perfect. She was not Jesus. She did not live a sinless life. Though she certainly had moments of Christ-likeness and like all of us, she had to seek wisdom on how to live, on how to live rightly. And Esther can be an example for us today. Particularly in chapter 4, when she's going back and forth with Mordecai on what she should do. How she should go forth um, about interceding for her people or going to the king or, or not. She has to work through it, doesn't she? She has to seek wisdom. And she needs Mordecai in, in her life as well to kind of reason back and forth. Like, no, no, this, I, I, think God is, I, I think this is the time for you to, to step up. And this can be for you and I today and our, our situations and circumstances that we go through in our lives. There is not immediate moral clarity every time a situation comes about, right? Sometimes things are difficult. You're like, I don't know, should I go this way? Should I go this way? Sometimes we need counsel. We need to go to the Lord in prayer and we need to seek out what is the best way for us to live. That's what Esther does and I believe she's an example for us today. Um, Esther had a moral dilemma. She wants to save her people, but also at the same time, the, the king's rules says that she would die if she goes in and says something to him. So save, you know, act on behalf of my people, potentially lose my life. Wh- like, which way should I go? What, what should I do? So she has a, a dilemma here that she has to work through. And ultimately, Esther does the Christ-like thing. She risks her own life on behalf of her people. And ultimately, she um, is willing to sacrifice herself for the good of others. And that's Exactly what Jesus did. Philippians 2 teaches that, right? That, that he um, gave himself on behalf of, of other people. He emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, right? And so he, um, th- this is the, the picture Esther is Christ-like in this way where she sacrifices herself for the good of others. And in that way, she is an example for you and I today to live that out as well. Where we look for opportunities and situations where we can sacrifice our own selfishness, where we can look not to the needs of ourselves, but to the needs of others and act in a Christ-like way to bring about, um, to, to work God's plan to save his people. Again, she's not Jesus, but she is Christ-like here. And God used Esther 
imperfect, just like you and I, to accomplish his plan. And he still does this today. He still uses imperfect people like you and I to accomplish his plan. Isn't that good news for us? That you can be used by God to bring about his purposes. It's reminded me of um, a tragedy that took place about a year ago now. There's a church planter over in New Caney named John Powell. And uh, about a year ago now, you may have heard it, it was, it was on the news when, when it happened and it was uh, a big story. It, it's been about a year now. But this church planter named John, um, he, uh, he was with a friend and they were driving down the road and he saw a, a car that had gotten in an accident and it was smoking or on fire or something. And, and they, they pulled over to help this person that had just gotten into an accident. So they, they're putting themselves at risk. They, they go over, they're trying to help this person out. And somehow, nobody's really sure exactly what happened, but a, a semi was coming down the road and it seems as if John put himself in harm's way in order to save somebody else, to push them out of the way. And in the course, John was struck by the truck and he died. And it is this act of self-sacrifice that, that reminded me of Esther here. John was willing to, to sacrifice his own life, literally lay down his own life to save somebody else physically. And um, this, this story, that, that is just uh, one example of many that we could tell of somebody laying down their lives, literally self-sacrificially for the good of other people. And you and I can use this as an example as well, though we may not need to um, completely give our lives away for the sake of others, but it is that attitude that I'm willing to do whatever it takes to bring somebody to the point of salvation. I'm willing to sacrifice in order to see God's plan at work in my life. And John was recently honored, by the way, at the most recent Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, He really liked baseball, and uh, he would bring a glove and and a ball each convention. In 2016, him and some of his friends started tossing a baseball around. And now, this year, for the first time, they created the John Powell Memorial Baseball Toss. And uh, his wife threw out a ceremonial first pitch to his father. And uh, it was really sweet. So he's going to be remembered for years and years and years to come for the self-sacrifice that he displayed by loving other people. And just like Esther, God still uses imperfect people who are willing to sacrifice themselves for the good of others, spiritually and physically. Lastly, we see this, that God uses great reversals to accomplish his plan. Let me explain. God uses great reversals to accomplish his plan. Haman, the enemy of the people of God, he's full of pride, he's full of arrogance throughout the story, And he is a great warning for us today to not be too puffed up, to not be too conceited because we know that God is in the business of making the first last and the last first. That's the way of Jesus and that's the way that the kingdom of God works, that those who are uh, well-known and puffed up and prideful and arrogant and maybe successful in today's world, in today's eyes, God actually makes them last and those who are last actually become first. The way down is up in the kingdom of God. That is the way of Jesus. And Haman is a perfect example of this here. And God does it all over the Bible, but Haman is a prime example. Because after plotting to kill the Jews, after plotting to kill Mordecai, he's so proud of himself for being so powerful and so loved by the king that then Haman has to lead a parade around the city for the one that he wanted to kill. And then he ends up dying on the same instrument that he built to kill somebody else. It's a, a perfect example of a reversal that happens. And there are numerous lessons to be learned here, but it's the pattern that's set forth here that I want to kind of pull the thread on because this happens throughout scripture and it's still true today. 
that when things look absolutely hopeless for the people of God, they're not. And when it looks like the people of God are, are, are um, going to be completely wiped out, God works a miracle. That's what he does here. God dramatically intervenes to um, bring about his purposes. And of course, this happened fully and finally on the cross, didn't it? When Jesus was crucified, it seemed like all was lost. All the disciples go back, they're, they're weeping, they can't believe that their teacher, rabbi, who they believed would be the savior, the, the, the one that was going to restore the kingdom, he, was, he died. When it seems like all hope is lost for the people of God, what are we going to do? It seemed like all was hopeless. It seemed like the powers of death, Satan, and sin had overcome, that they had won. It's like the, the scene in um, the Chronicles of Narnia where Aslan is killed by the white witch on the stone table. As Lucy and um, Susan watch on, right? They're, they're heartbroken. What, what are we going to do? The enemies all celebrate. They think that they have won. All hope looks like it is lost. What do we do now? Well, we wait on the great reversal. When all seems hopeless, when it seems like God has forgotten us, he hasn't. When we feel abandoned, we're not. And in the greatest reverse, reversal imaginable, Jesus rose from the dead. He conquers death. And as a result, the great reversal is available for us. That you and I today, though we would be deserving, we are deserving of death. We are deserving of punishment. Instead, because of what Jesus has done, we don't get that. We get the great reversal. We get to have life. We get to have salvation. We get to have joy because of what Jesus has done. The great reversal is available for you and I today because of what Jesus has done for us. We can all now be a part of God's plan to save a people for his glory. So we're going to respond in just a moment in worship. I'm going to wrap up. Band's going to come back out and uh, we're going we're gonna to sing God's praises for what he has done. But I want to encourage you in your own life today, wherever you are, whatever's going on, just um, you th- think of this story and may we look, open our eyes in a new way to see where God is at work. May, may, we, we might be going through life with our spiritual eyes closed. We, we might not be looking for the opportunities in the ways that may, maybe God is at work in this situation and circumstance. When I'm standing in line for three hours to get my license renewed, or whatever, whatever, whatever circumstance or situation you find yourself in, look, open your eyes to see where God is at work. When you go through a tragedy or difficult time, when you lose somebody you love or you're going through a difficult time at home, let's... It doesn't take away the pain. But may, may we open our eyes anew and look and see where, where is God at work in this situation? And we can trust the one, of course, who has already worked the greatest reversal imaginable. We, we, can, we can trust the one with our complete lives, the one who raised from the dead. He is worthy of all of our trust and all of our devotion. He is trustworthy. And we can cast ourselves upon him again. And may we see the coincidences in our lives as God's hand at work. And may we see ourselves as imperfect people that God can use to bring about his purposes. God can and does use people like you and I.
as we model ourselves after our Savior, who gave himself self-sacrificially, who was willing to give his life for the sake of others. May we, imperfect as we are, model our Savior in that way to see people come to know him and to glorify him because God is always working his plan to save his people. Amen. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by what you heard today. If you'd like more information about Champion Forest Baptist Church, our service times, or how you can get connected, visit us at championforest.org. Thanks so much. Have a great day, and God bless.